As we look this morning at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, I'm just going to look at this one verse for now, but I want to invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Father, we thank you for your precious word and for this portion we've read here together. And now, Lord, you add your blessings and may we see Jesus. May we hear his voice as you speak to us. Help us, Lord, to respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what's the greatest need in the Christian church today? You know, if you ask a hundred different people, you're likely to get at least 50 different answers. Well, we need to be better givers. We need more money in the church. We need to be more involved in missions. We need to be going more. We need to develop ministries geared for youth or seniors or, or some other group in the church. We need to do something to overcome division and racism. All of these things are true. We need these things in the church. But I submit to you this morning, the greatest need for the Christian church is a God-sent revival. The people of God turning back to Him. And unless revival takes place in the hearts and lives of Christians, we'll never be able to do anything else that will matter for eternity. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Most of us equate the term revival with a series of meetings. Meetings that might take place once a year, twice a year, or less often, or more often. These meetings typically feature a speaker who comes in from out of town, shares a series of messages, really good singing, maybe some great testimonies, and we may even experience some emotional highs during that week. But too often, the results of these meetings is something much less than revival. When revival really happens, we're going to see some amazing things. When revival happens, we see broken families mended. We see friendships restored. We'll see church members becoming active and involved in their local church. We'll see families praying together, not just at church, but at home as well, and worshiping together. We'll experience love for our brothers and sisters in ways we never have before. We'll, we'll have a burning desire to serve in leadership roles in the church. We'll see our tithes and our offerings increase in dollar amounts, but we'll also see how God will multiply those gifts and use them in ways that boggle our imagination. When we truly experience revival, people will be drawn to the church. 
People will be drawn to the church. Remember the words of Jesus? Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw men to me. So the result of a genuine revival will be a harvest of souls for the Lord. May not come during that week. And typically for a, a, a true revival, it wouldn't. But, but at some point later, as Christian people get right with God, then they become more obedient in reaching out to those who are lost. Now the question for us, do we really want revival? Do we really want to see revival? Do we want to experience revival in our own lives? I think it's safe to say that if I, if I were to survey you this morning, 100% of us would say, sure, we want to see revival. Who wouldn't want to see revival? But unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. See, we cannot experience a true heaven-sent revival until each of us individually experiences revival in our own hearts. Each of us. But when revival comes, we'll know it. We will know it. We'll be drawn closer to God than ever before. We'll be closer to each other in the Lord. We'll experience the presence and power of God that we never dreamed possible. People outside of the walls of the church will notice a definite change in us. They'll see it and they'll recognize it. Have there ever been revivals like that before? Sure there have. Remember the New Testament church? In the second chapter of Acts, we read about how the Holy Spirit came upon those who were praying in the upper room. There were 120 people there, and they were praying. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them like a mighty rushing wind, gave them cloven tongues of fire that sat upon them. And from there they fanned out, and revival spread. The gospel of Jesus Christ spread. Thousands. From that 120 people, thousands were saved. And those early Christians were referred to as the ones who turned the world upside down. How many people think of us like that? How often are we referred to as people who are turning the world upside down? I fear not at all. Another remarkable revival took place in America in the 1700s, the Great Awakening. And out of that revival, nationwide repentance came. And then there was a revival of 1857. It was an unusual movement begun by a man named Jeremiah Lampier. And his, his idea was simply at lunchtime every day to go into this little church and pray during his lunch hour, to go pray. On September 23rd, 1857, he went into his prayer room. And he began to pray. And 20 minutes later, six other people joined him. In a week, there were 20 men gathered there, praying at noon. And in six months, 10,000 people were gathered in that church and other churches in the area and outside the churches 
at noon every day praying for God to sweep among his people, to make a change in the world. And, and revival swept our nation as a result to such extent that we got such preachers as J. Hudson Taylor and D.L. Moody. More recently, some of you remember the mighty revival that took place in 1970 at Asbury College in Kentucky. A group of students gathered for a prayer service, a chapel service, a routine chapel service on February 3rd, 1970. And the dean of the college came in and said, you know, instead of preaching to you today, I simply want us to have a time of testimony. And so one after the other, students stood up and later faculty joined and they began to testify. And God came into that service in a special way and tears flowed down the faces as they confessed their sins and they sought repentance and experienced joy and peace like they had never had in their lives. And that one chapel service that was scheduled to last for 50 minutes lasted continuously for 185 hours, over a week. From all across the nation, people drove and flew into that little college town to participate in the Asbury Revival. How, how exciting that must have been. In more recent years, similar revivals have taken place in, in Florida, and even most recently that I can think of in Burlington, just up the road. Time and again, God has brought about amazing revivals throughout history. He's done this. Do these revivals have anything in common? Yes, they do. And we'll discover that common denominator in our text this morning. And I believe we can truly experience revival with or without a series of meetings, with or without the music, the special music, the, the preachers from out of town or, or any other uh, things that we might want to add to attract people. First of all, notice that God has a people. God has a people. He says, if my people, my people. Now in this passage, God is speaking to Solomon in a vision. The vision came to Solomon the night after he had completed building the temple. Now think about that as the context. He had just finished building the temple. And God spoke to him and said, if my people people. Now God is not talking about unsaved people when he's talking about revival. He's talking about us, the church. My people who are called by my name, we're called Christians after Christ. He's very clear here. Revival is a mighty movement of God's people. And it occurs first and foremost, among God's people, those who have been saved, the bride of Christ, the church, those who have been called out, we, you and me, we are God's people. And he says, if my people, Dr. Richard Lee writes, the only time you'll know if revival genuinely come, comes is when 
hardened hearts are broken and people start making up with their brothers and sisters in Christ, begin to apologize and ask for forgiveness, when jealousy, anger, and hatred begin to be confessed and laid on altars of prayer, and tears begin to flow down faces, not because of the problems folks are in, but because of the sin the Holy Spirit's revealed, sin that needs to be purged from their souls. When there's a fresh awareness, he says, of the holiness of God. That's what revival is all about. And where does it start? It starts in the house of the Lord, among God's people. See, if we want to experience true revival, then we, as God's people, have a responsibility. What is it? Look at the next part of this verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Now that's an easy one, isn't it? We love to be humble, don't we? <laughs> it's hard. And that's the second point. God hates human pride. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. If my people will humble themselves, it's urgently vital. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know any Christians that are such jerks that you wish they weren't Christians at all because they give us all bad names? God says, if my people will humble themselves. God resists the proud. Why does God hate pride so much? Well, think about it. Pride is the basis for rebellion. Rebellion is the very essence of sin. Rebellion is what got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. Isaiah 14 tells us about the fall of Lucifer. He was an angel in heaven. There were... There were no other angels higher than he. And we read about him being adorned with grandiose splendor. But he was found to have pride in his heart. He boasted. He said, I will exalt my throne. I will be like the Most High. God saw his rebellion and kicked him out of heaven. And Jesus saw it. Remember what he said in the New Testament. Jesus said, I saw Satan as a lightning fall from heaven. This is how Satan got to earth, and now he reigns in the hearts of mankind. There's also pride that caused mankind to sin. Satan convinced Eve that she could be like God if she would just partake of this one forbidden fruit. And so Adam and Eve sinned against God. And Christ died on the cross in order that we could be made right with God and restored to a right relationship with Him. It's no wonder God hates pride so. It's what cost Him the life of His only Son. Question. When God looks at you and at me, 
does he see pride? Does he see pride in our lives? Does he see someone who's too proud to to bend down on his or her knees and ask for forgiveness? Someone who's too proud to go to a friend and confess that they were wrong and ask for forgiveness? Someone too proud to say to a spouse, Honey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Someone too proud to be restored to a close relationship with a child or a parent. God will not pour out his Holy Spirit and we will not experience revival as long as we have pride in our hearts. We can't be ruled by pride. God resists the proud. That's the opposite of blessing, isn't it? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God hates pride, but notice what happens if we humble ourselves. God hears holy prayer. God hears holy prayer. A farmer on vacation in a big city went to eat lunch one day, and when his food came, he bowed his head and prayed. And some local guys were sitting off to the side laughing at him. After his prayer, one of the men said, Hey, Pops, back where you come from, does everybody pray before they eat? And the farmer was unfazed by all of this, and he calmly replied, Well, everyone except the pigs. Our text says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... But that's not all it says. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll hear from heaven. Then. When? When two things happen. When we pray, and not just any old prayer. Not just give me, give me, Lord. I need this. Help me. But when we pray holy prayers, prayers seeking the face of God. You notice that God didn't say here for us to pray seeking his hand. But that's what we are usually praying for, isn't it? His hand of protection. His hand of provision. His hand of mercy. How often do we pray seeking his face, the holiness of God? Our prayers are often very selfish, aren't they? Lord, I need this. Lord, give me that. Lord, do this for me. When do we pray, Lord, I just want more of you. I want to see you. I want to be used by you. I surrender myself completely to you. It's comforting to feel the hand of God intervening, providing, loving us. But the only way that we're going to experience revival is when we seek the face of God. And we know that prayer is a a key element in the life of a Christian. 
but understand the importance of seeking God's face in prayer. See, when we seek his face, we're seeking his holiness. And then when we stand in his holiness, we see ourselves as we really are. Not as pride tells us we are, but as we truly are in front of him. The prophet Isaiah saw the holiness of God. He saw the throne of God high and lifted up, and his confession, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why did he react this way? Because he saw the holiness of God. If prayer is the first step, then what's the second step? We have to turn from our wicked ways. In other words, we have to repent. Repentance, the concept is simple. It means you're going in one direction, you stop, and you turn around and go completely the other direction. Sounds simple. Stop, you turn around, and you go the other way. That's repentance. See, it's not enough to be sorry. I mean, anyone who loves God is sorry for their sins, right? We're sorry for our sins. But when we repent of our sins, it means we stop doing whatever it is that's breaking the heart of God. We turn around and we go the other way. We're, move, we're moving away from him. We stop that. We turn around and we move toward him. That's repentance. And revival. Revival is preceded by repentance. The powerful revivalist preacher Charles Finney once stated that Christians are more to blame for not being revived than sinners are for not being converted. Christians are more to blame for not being revived than sinners are for not being converted. He also proclaimed that revival is nothing less than a new beginning of obedience to God. And the Bible tells us to obey is better than sacrifice. It's a, a renewal of our obedience to God. And we cannot experience that without repentance. If we truly want to see revival, there can't be evil in our hearts. There can't be evil in our minds. Repentance comes first. Only then can we experience revival. Notice the order of the scripture here. If my people will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin. Then I will heal their land. Heal their land. Then means that one event must occur before the other one happens. Simple cause and effect. The cause is our repentance. The effect is revival. The question for each of us 
what is the sin in my life for which I must repent? What unconfessed sin is there keeping me from experiencing revival? What is standing between God and revival in my life, in my mind, in my heart? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God wants us to experience revival. It's his heart's desire for his children. But is it your desire and mine? Notice, last of all, God's promise. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land. Then I will. God gives us a promise here. He doesn't say, then I might. He says, then I will. God does not lie. God keeps his word. And if we Christians will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and repent of our sins, then God will hear, hear our prayers. He will forgive our sins and he will heal our land. And who among us would not admit that this land you and I love is in great need of healing? Every day we become more and more familiar with the sin that Satan has unleashed in our country. Moral decay is all around us. What will our world be like in 20 years if revival doesn't happen? Think about that. If we don't experience revival soon, what's going to happen to our world? Now more than ever is the time for God's people to experience revival. And in order for us to have revival, we have to adhere to God's recipe for revival that we find right here in 2 Chronicles 